Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by The Rewatchables. Andy, this is a new podcast from the Ringer Podcast Network. People are excited about this. It's about, it's a podcast that's going through sort of the last, say, 25 years Mm -hmm. of the most rewatchable movies. Yes. Right, so basically... Kind of an homage to those cable classics where it's like if it comes on, you're stuck. No matter what part of the movie you're at, even no matter how you know much time you have, you're like, yeah. I'm I'm in. I'm in for 20 minutes. I'm in for an hour. Whatever it is. Yep. First episode was a few good men. Good choice. Featuring myself, mm-hmm. Billy J. Simmons, mm-hmm. one of the great podcasters, and Amanda Dobbins. We had a blast doing that. We'll have another one this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to try and get these to you with regularity. I think a lot of professionalism. A ringer friends are going to be on them, right? A lot of ringer family is going to be on these. And while I'm here, I just want to also say, I hope you guys are spending all your free time listening to Ringer Podcast Network podcasts. How about Against All Odds with Cousin Sal? How about GM Street with Tate Frazier and Mike Lombardi? Yeah. How about the NFL show with Kevin Clark, Robert Mays, Danny Kelly, all manner of guests? Can I throw one out? Sure. What about House of Carbs with Joe House and coming soon, special guest Andy Greenwald. Also, the Chestnuts. Big big picture, binge mode, mass man, shack house, teed up, the you know, Ringer FC. Jam session. There's a new one on soccer, jam session, did, did bachelor say, party. Did you almost say the watch? I almost said the watch. But the, I can't get the watch out of my mind. Nah. I can't get Ringer podcasts out of my ears. It's all good. Listen to them all. We're going to get going with an episode of The Watch right now. Let's go. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on a snowy ice mission to save the world. It's Andy Greenwald. Actually, that's why I moved to L.A. I'm done with snowy ice missions. Furred up. <laughs> get furred up. He stays furred up. Wow. It's the Ringer Podcast Network. It's the Watch. It's Chris and Andy. It's Monday. Mm-hmm. We're still reeling from a Game of Thrones in which no one died, but a lot of connections were made. A lot of a lot of sniffing happened, and not at, no narcos, but there was a lot of <laughs> important sniffing. Greenwald and I are going to talk a little bit about Game of Thrones. We're going to talk a little bit about Shonda Rhimes' blockbuster move from the American Broadcasting Corporation to the Netflix Corporation. Listen. You better put on your industry cap. I have to get my uh, flame retardant suit for the takes that are coming from Greenwald on this one. I got thoughts. Uh, And then the second half of the podcast today is an interview that I did with Adam Grandesiel from The War on Drugs. A Philly boy. Yeah, man. We had a great talk. He's got a new album coming out. A Deeper Understanding drops August 25th, Mm -hmm. receiving rave reviews. I am sorry I missed this. And it's dope. It's a really good record. How was your time with him? He's awesome. Basketball player. Is he? Game of Thrones fan. Talked about it all. Talked about Steely Dan. Talked about making this new record out in L.A. Did you talk about Wawa? Perfectionism. We talked about perfectionism. And how I'm holding you back. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, so check out that awesome. interview with Adam in the second half of the podcast. But first, where else would we start? But Westeros. Westeros. Mm. Um, Andy, last night's episode was interesting because I think you and I were watching it. We watch I, it with with Adam uh, with a with a we watch it with Adam Grandisil. No, we watch it with Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, which is a treat. Always, uh, the Benjamo guys. We they, we also watched a T Pain adjacent. Yeah, adjacent to T Pain. Um, but they're watching it. They're processing all this information. They're thinking about the history and like all the stuff. They're from holding the books. each other's hands. Holding hands. Mallory grabbed me very very hard. I saw on my that. hand that hurt. Um, I sit way on the other side of you guys. But I think there were a couple of parts of last night's episode where you and I looked at each other, and even we we vocalized this, where I was like, that was corny. Yeah. And I think I've been trying to articulate this to myself for a couple hours now, that I think one of the things that's so cool about this show is the fact that even though it was 
a fantasy or whatever you want to call it, like some sort of genre work, that it felt very rooted in an understandable kind of nation state army conflict. Mm -hmm. You know, that even though there was magic and dragons and um, prophecies and legends and, and, and destinies, that Tywin and Stannis and Rob and Jaime uh, were playing this chess game of, of, of military might and mm-hmm. savvy. So you liked the show when it was about men making military moves. No, I love I, I like I love the show. I'm not saying I don't like the show. What I'm saying is a bunch of people in a room being like we've gotten to this point. Yeah. What we got to do is go capture a zombie and bring it back to King's Landing. We could just burn King's Landing down. That, that's what I want to say. We start could with. just send a team of assassins to kill Cersei. This is, we could just do a bunch of things that would just like X this out. But instead, we are going on this weird mission to prove something to Cersei when Cersei then in another scene is like, I'm fine like having I'll, an armistice because maybe that would be beneficial to me. This is Am I maybe I'm misreading things. No, I mean there's two there's two conversations to be had about the role of this episode in the structure of the season, in the structure of the series. Um we weren't sure if there would be these bridge episodes anymore because, you know, there's so there are fewer episodes. There's a lot of ground to cover. Apparently, it's very easy to cover ground now. Yeah. Ships can literally teleport, yeah. so we're not worried about that anymore. So this was a connective tissue episode, which had pluses and minuses, as they always do. There are always episodes in this spirit in a season of Game of Thrones. Yes. We were a little caught off guard. We didn't think there would be room for them. So, And I think we we've get, been preparing for the worst for a long time yes. in terms of— this is going to be a bloodbath. Yeah. So many characters are going to die. Yeah, beloved characters. Yeah, yeah. So that's apparently going to be next week. So we can talk about that. But I, 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 let's start where you started, which is the central thrust of this episode pointing towards the second half of the season. I mean, next week is the penultimate episode. It feels totally rhythmically off, but yeah. that's where we're at. Is based around a plan that is wild dumb. This just seems very stupid to me. Now, again, you have to do this with other shows often, and it's the first time we've had to do it with Game of Thrones, which is – Try and give the creators the benefit of the doubt and your creative empathy or sympathy and be like, certain things had to happen. So in order to build the house that we want to build it, we got to cut some corners in the uh, HVAC system. You know what I mean? Like we got to do some like deep <laughs> yeah. plumbing work here. And the work that needed to be done was we need to have more action uh, with the Army of the Dead, with people we care about, which involves putting them on the other side of the wall again. Right. We also don't want next season, I think we're headed here, to be just a CGI enemy. So we want to keep Cersei in play somehow, yep. or or some Lannister, or, or have some Euron be you know some yeah. extra threat. Euron, who now has been out of the mix for a couple episodes, which is he literally could have traversed the globe six times yeah. in how much time he's been off screen. Um, but we also you know, but they also want John to be south and then north and then south again, right? We mm-hmm. know we're pretty confident. We should say we know would be fine if this wasn't a show that was like Tyrion's going to be in a box for half. Exactly, the season. we're also yeah. confident now, or it used to be that show. We're also confident that the Hound will survive this because he has to fight his brother mm-hmm. in King's Landing. So there's certain things that, quote-unquote, have to happen. And I think this is a, a point I was making last night on Talk the Thrones. It's exciting to think of a season finale that would involve all our players in the same place for the first time. You know, if there's a case to be made to Cersei yeah. or in King's Landing, that is great drama, and it's probably worth getting there. All that to be said. All that said, this plan which is let's take some of the most crucial characters to the future of the world, including basically the Messiah, uh, Tormund, who is king of the free folk and guarding the wall personally. Mm-hmm. Um, Jorah, who just came off a of sick leave, you know what I mean? Right. Like just working back into game shape. How strong do you think his sword arm is right now? I have no idea. I don't know whether uh, Grayscale solidifies the muscle or what. I, I doubt it. 
sending them on what is essentially a suicide mission to do something that seems profoundly unnecessary. Because, again, they've done, they've laid some track to make us understand this. The track they've laid says Daenerys does not want to set fire to King's Landing. Well, okay. no, Tyrion doesn't want her to set fire to King's she, Landing. Right, she has now backed John off doesn't of want her to set right. fire. Like, these people are Good saying, point. like, don't be the Mad King. Good point. Let's find another way. That said, dragons aren't nuclear weapons, which I, I know is a sensitive subject this week for those of us in IRL. But you could fly a dragon and just burn the castle, right? I don't know. I'm just saying, you don't, I don't understand all of this risking everything that matters in order to prove something to Cersei who doesn't matter. It's weird that there are no other plans. It's weird that they were like, okay, so there's like either this, this WMD option, which is not really politically palatable or humanitarian. Yeah, and I'm with that. The option B is this kamikaze dirty dozen mission, uh, which I've heard. Described as like, you know, uh, Snowshins 11, which I liked very much on Snowshin, Twitter. Snowshin 7. Snowshin 7. I think William right. O'Donnell is the name of the person. I also that. think because you've got Gendry and John, you can go in Glorious Bastards. I'm sure that's been mentioned before, I but I, that. I, 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 that occurred to me today. Although we learned last night, not a bastard. John, not a bastard. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm repping for Mallory here. That, no, I, here, and you know what? I'm glad you brought up Mal, and I, I wanted to bring up Jason because one of the things that's really cool about watching the show with them, not only because they, have like this uh, background in it, but Jason was saying last night he was like, "I think John wants to die. Mm-hmm. Like, I think John, John has like the the safety is off with John, and he is kind of like every mission is seemingly Im- impossible odds. Never tell John the odds, and that is an interesting. I wish the show sh- showed that more, you know, or I wish they Kit Harrington had a moment." To, to depict that more, yes, um, that he that 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 he was like, you know what? I know that this is kind of a wild, un, unstable plan, but I'm a guy who's died and come back to life, and I don't want to come back to life again. You know, look, the show, for many reasons, is completely unique and sui generis in the history of television, and we're continue the way we cover it, and is in many ways post criticism. In the way, yes, because we all want to see, we all just want to see what's going to happen. We all bought tickets to the show, and we want to watch the show. So right. I, I, I I get that. Um, one of the unique things about it over the course of the first six seasons was, though it was always heavily plot-driven, there was event and event and there were people moving and you know characters were kept apart for seasons at a time, because there was so much source material in such an expansive world, they were very skilled at finding – I mean, they were, Benioff and Weiss are very skilled adapters and there was, they found pockets to advance the humanity of the characters, to – Put them in pairings that would reflect both of their tr- both of the characters in the scenes. Jamie and Brienne, for instance, yeah, right, and 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 advance things twofold so that people are on a long walk somewhere. They have a chance to know each other, and we have a chance to know them too. Mm-hmm. There is very little time for that left. All of a sudden, you know, it went from having limitless time to suddenly the show's ending. So now we need to get moving, and I we're really seeing the strain in scene work. I mean, scene work, scene construction, the breaking of episodes. This is like boring TV 101, but I would say the degree of difficulty, everyone's always given them credit, and rightfully so, for the the difficulty of adapting this sprawling work, but Mm -hmm. the degree of difficulty in these last two seasons, these 11 episodes or whatever it's going to end up being, is just monumental, because every scene now has to do five, six, seven jobs, and very few scenes are load-bearing enough to withstand that. It's strange, too, because you think about whether or not, I don't know, there's going to be, like, say, two more books. One more book, I mean, if you ever finish... Jason says no, but, yeah. Okay, so... Wouldn't that theoretically be like three more seasons? 
Four more seasons. Wouldn't 11 seasons be the amount of time that you would probably, quote unquote, yes. need to tell this yes, story? Yes, HBO would want that. Yeah. You know, this is, I, I don't want to read too much into it yet because we haven't seen the rest of the season. There is an element of storytelling that does feel like they're ready to move on. You know, and but or it's just they want they were ready to end the story. Maybe it's just a semantics thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But there, it does. The, expediency seems to be the rule of the day in the show now. Not just in terms of the characters moving places, but the the completely compressed shorthand with which characters have to define who they are to each other before you know sailing across the world. So like the the Arya and Sansa stuff just isn't working for me. There's something inert about it because we barely. You know, we we kind of remember who they were, and then there were six years when they were apart, and now they're together, and they have three scenes to basically sketch out their territory, and then and then relitigate their entire relationship. Mm-hmm. It's just very hard to do. And so, yeah, I agree. Like John should be doing something other than brooding on a cliff and then going back to war again. It, it's like I think we said this last week or the week before. I am coming full circle and suddenly being. I, I no longer think that George R. R. Martin should feel totally terrible about getting yeah. the story stolen from him because we're watching it now and we're like, there's actually a lot more work to be done yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, we are almost getting the Cliff's Notes version. So, yes, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think I said it. Like, the show is in many ways post-criticism. But what w- I'm going to throw a hypothetical at you. I don't think this is going to happen. But what if it's not great? You know what I mean? Like, what if... My guess is that even if certain things line up too neatly or feel rushed, the overall experience of having lived through this and watched this show is going to wash away most sins. You know, I, it, it, if, next, if they pull off next week's episode with this daring snow rescue of a dead body, we're not going to remember the ridiculous machinations that it took to get them there. We're going to remember the excitement of episode six in this season, right? Sure. But... I kind of wonder the thing. I, I'm not saying it's going to – I don't see a world where Game of Thrones is bad and people are like no. turning on it no, like they the did at the end of Lost. the writing is really good. The acting is really and good. They love and the it characters. looks better than anything that's ever been on television. But let's take a moment. Like there's not much time left all of a sudden and everyone is going to need a to have a grace note or a farewell or to feel like their storyline is resolved. And it does feel like – I can't wait to be wrong about this on some level. But it does feel like certain beloved characters – um, like Bronn, for example, is just bulletproof. You know what I mean? Like he's just there to call Jamie a C-word. And, or not. I mean, because... Or, or not. And I wonder, even... This is why it's still fun to talk about the show. Even that is fraught, yeah. right? Because if Bronn just surprise gets broasted next week, then the conversation will be, do you think Benioff and Weiss were feeling criticism that they're too soft and Martin would have done this, so they need to keep us on our toes? Well, but you know I, I mean, the, the meta conversation. Yeah, continues. I mean that, that 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 meta conversation continues. But I think that the central idea that I think attracted plenty of people to the show, or at least made them so passionate about it, and I know it had a lot to do with how I felt about the show, was this idea that this series started with a series of characters, with a group of characters that all died. That mm-hmm. all you thought Cat and Rob and these people. I mean, obviously, people who read the books didn't weren't mm-hmm. under that impression but if you you're watching the show and you're so invested in certain people and then you're you, you, you know you're taught lessons about the world that they exist in is that the world is cruel and unforgiving and punishes people for making these kinds of choices to now have a group of 12 characters about who you know I mean not all of them are going to make it but in a lot of ways it's it's strange like I'm starting to run out of 
ways in which Jamie dies. I guess I'm I'm thinking out loud, but what I'm saying is like the idea is is it's gone from plot subversion or myth subversion to myth fulfillment. Yes, and so here's the thing that I wanted to ask today, which is when was the last time Game of Thrones made you feel like the episode The Mountain and the Viper? And I, I'm thinking, I was thinking of it already, and then actually our friend Shay Serrano was surreptitiously filming his wife watching that episode mm-hmm. put it on Twitter last night, and we saw her face, and it reminded me of the reactions the show once I engendered. think it would have felt that way last week if Jamie had died. Yes, and I'm not saying shocking us like that is the goal, because that is, I think that can be very cheap storytelling if used ineffectively. But if we think about the really breathtaking moments of the last few years, they have been, they've, they've been fulfilling, to exactly to your point. Arya somehow survives this battle with a waif and is now, you know, a Terminator, basically. Um, Battle of the Bastards is brutal and savage and an incredible episode, incredible filmmaking. And we lost a giant. Literally, the giant Mm -hmm. died. But the good guys won at the end of it. Last week, the dragon comes. No one we care about dies. And, you know, the dragon wins. So what is the next? Are we waiting for that next surprise? Or have we moved past that surprise? I'm not sure. Um... I'm not, you know, but I, I, I guess the only other thing to say is, and there were great scenes last night. There were moments where I was Yeah, I, I think we were, we were probably sounding I, a little bit critical. Because I think Whereas we were, I think what we're doing is really, I, you know, in the moment, you're, you're just so blown away by so many things. But I'm trying to sort of unpack, like, so this is it, huh? Like, we're going yes. to go with, with we got to capture a White Walker and bring it to Cersei I mean, what about Cersei makes you think that she would be I, like, sure. I don't understand yeah, like, that. No, I, I don't understand you. why we want this her on This seems dangerous. Let's, let's team up. The part, the part of my brain that, that, that still has vestiges of being a, uh, a daily active you know, TV critic and the things that were probably the most important, quote unquote, last night, the most emotionally uh, thrilling were based on, once again, on Jon Snow's parentage. And that's why Mallory was crying and why she and Jason were holding hands. I don't know if that's enough for me as a TV viewer, you know, because I, I know I get it. And this all seems to be tying into larger mythologies that are very gratifying for people who've been reading the book series for 20 years. But I kind of want to know more about John's life now, not as a messiah of a religion that I don't personally subscribe to. And I mean that in all senses. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's important that the show function not just as the checking of long promised boxes. Mm-hmm. And I certainly don't mean to make the criticism that it is not doing that, but there are, there are moments when I'm like, well, let, let's be honest. Like the we, the flow of information on the show as of episode 706 is starting to remind me of movies and TV shows we would have been more harshly critical of where people just don't say the important thing to each other. Yeah. You know, like when, when uh, Ebros in the morning is like, yeah, his family just was burned alive, but I haven't told him yet. And then he leaves. When Bran knows everything, writes a note, but not the important note. Right. You know, the, there, there's a lot of withho- convenient withholding going on, as there is in all narrative storytelling for the screen. Yes. Anybody who's ever read a crime novel where totally. the hero finally finds the guy who can explain the whole book in a room by yes. himself and says, you better tell me what's happened. And then there's six pages of yes. explanation. But That's li- what happens in storytelling. But like with our f- beloved crime novels that actually on the face of them kind of make no sense plot wise, but we love them. It's the balancing act of storytelling where, you know, wonderful character work, deep emotional uh, upheaval or emotional um, 
you know, exhilaration can forgive almost any yeah. mechanical sin. Yeah. And that's the balancing act that we're watching Game of Thrones try to wrestle with as it goes into the home stretch. All right. So we've been talking about Thrones. We've been talking about Thrones for years. We really have. Years. We rarely talk about the shows of Shonda Rhimes. That's a shame. Uh, I am a uh, big fan mm-hmm. of early Grey's Anatomy. Me too. I am. Remember the Kyle Chandler episode at the Super Bowl? <laughs> with uh, Monica Kina, right? Was she in it too? I can't remember. She was on Grey's Anatomy. I remember the Kyle Chandler, remember, he but got. The, the, but then she's got the like the light pole stuck in her. But Kyle remember? Chandler got blowed up. I know, man. So that show is good. Not only did I, am I a Grey's fan from o- yeah, OG days. Original Grey's. Kind of fell off, obviously, over t- some point. High body count on that show, by the way, rivaling only Game of Thrones. I am an office roommate with Juliet Littman, yeah. who still rides for Grey's mm-hmm. today. Uh, Season 14. Amanda Dobbins, still a Scandal fan, Okay, I believe. There are neighbors here on the lot. Yeah, uh, Shonda, Shonda Land is basically located here on the, on the lot. We should do more crossover. Huge acts. news last night. Yeah. Weird timing. Like, I guess Sunday night is the new Friday news dump or whatever. Or maybe Sunday night is like, now we're going to dominate this Sunday week. Sunday night is when people watch TV. Uh, that Shonda Rhimes is going to be ending her long, like pl- decade plus relationship with ABC. And is moving to Netflix. Yep. Uh, she will still have, you know, she will still oversee the shows that mm-hmm. are, are running at ABC. So this is the final season of Scandal. Yep. It is, I don't know if, I don't really know what the state of Grey's is. In terms of, I think the state of Grey's just changed. I, that's that was I was going to ask you that. Yeah. And then how to get away oh, with oh, murder. They were been talking at Grey's spinoff, and I wonder what. Yeah, I think that's. that they have that, and then there's how to get away with murder, and she's got another show coming. A this bunch fall. of stuff in development. Yeah. And has had shows not make it out of pilot, like Toast. I think was a comedy mm-hmm. that she had. The Catch ran for two seasons and had like a massive sort of re. Yes. reconfiguration right yes. like it had been one thing and then they like just completely rejiggered it and our pal Alan Heinberg came in um, I believe he has a show with her as well he does yeah um, writer of Wonder Woman or mm-hmm. one of the writers of Wonder Woman soul, soul so now she's on Netflix and this has just been rolled out as I mean I, I have it's, it's interesting because as somebody who doesn't watch a ton of Shonda stuff but obviously follows the television industry I don't think I got the um, magnitude of this until other people started yeah kind of like Juliet just texted me and was just like, I am rocked by this. You know, and I think that people associate a good chunk of like their television watching lives with watching Shonda shows on ABC in a very specific way at very specific times in a very specific format with very specific rules and a very specific look. Yes. And I think that that is one of the, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about Netflix here, but you can also talk about like, what does a Shonda show look like without any... I think that's a very good question to ask. Restrictions and oversight. ABC as a network has been having an identity crisis for maybe its entire existence. Um, It has been saved or kept afloat by certain planks that are just, you know, that keep them above water. The Bachelor franchise is one. Uh, Just continually having the best consistent, I would say, sitcom development. Modern Family, Blackish. Modern Family, Blackish. You know, The Middle is ending. It's a show I have never seen a frame of, but it will have run for nine seasons and people really liked it. You know, Fresh Off the Boat is doing well. Um, they have a comedy brand that they stick to and they understand and they and they execute, you know. Uh, but largely the network is Shondaland. They gave her an entire night. Mm-hmm. Um, and the shows that are that are on ABC's air that aren't Shonda shows are kind of Shonda Light. I mean, they they are built to exist in the same ecosystem as her shows. So Quantico is not a Shondaland show, but it certainly has um, 
her DNA in it in yeah. terms of what you know how ABC positions itself. So it is a identity rocking move. Um, there's also an argument to be made though that they were perhaps too in business with Shonda. Now that that seems this is this is the kind of thing you say after you lose your MVP. You know, like this is this is yeah, people saying like, like saying it's the Ewing theory. It's yes, basically exactly. like I have we had this star player. That's right. But that star player needed the ball a lot. We fed and now the, that we they're that gone, we much. have so much real estate now. So many other resources. Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing, especially in 2017, oh, this is always true. If you are running a broadcast network, you don't want open real estate. What you want is a night you don't have to worry about. What mm-hmm. you want is a time slot you don't have to worry about. You just want something you can plug in and it is a relief. You know, and that's why it turns out Dick Ebersol didn't overpay for the NFL because it just just such a breather. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, it's highly rated and a valuable thing to have on your air. And it puts but, you in business with so many advertisers yeah, just it, initially that, like, I think a lot of things come from that. Yeah. Those kind of relationships. Now, from Netflix's point of view, it's kind of, it's super aggressive. It is a super aggressive dick move on some level. I mean, it's business. But to be like, we're just going to rip the heart out of a network here. Now, it's obviously, it's two-way street, but they have more money mm-hmm. and they offer more freedom. And I think if you would talk to... Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, who made shows for NBC, their deal is still with Universal. But, you know, when Kimmy Schmidt went from NBC to Netflix, what a relief on some level for them. They don't – they're freed from ratings. They, they're they decoupled from it. They just sure. have to do the thing that they do. Certain people will watch it. We don't know how many. And they get nominated for Emmys and they find – it finds its audience and they keep – they just – they're in production. They right. work. That's got to be a relief from someone who has been not just surviving but thriving in the still difficult network trenches for all these years. Yeah. There's an element of when the Phillies signed Jim Tomey, when they were like, okay, we're ready now. Now we're going to do this. Yeah, and it's funny you should say that because in the deadline piece that announces the Shonda deal, the inline sort of link to another story is Chuck Lorre Hollywood comedy starring Michael Douglas nears Netflix series order. So this isn't them chipping up. They're here. You know what I mean? and And this is, you know, you could make the argument that yeah, it's it's like there are soccer leagues, you know, where guys go to get a payday at the end of the at the end of their careers. Yeah. This is not that. This is them. No. And you know, you, what I'm most fascinated about by is this idea that if they keep accumulating content on this level, when are they going to have to make some fundamental changes to the actual way the platform interface works in terms of like Seeing like, is there going to be a Shonda channel of Netflix? Like, how are they going to break button. down how yeah. they promote things, how they distribute things, how what that. order? Like, how part of the reason not not in any way all, but a p- element to s- the success of the Shonda shows is the community yeah. around them, right. and the it's tonight is the night that the show is on. Let's live tweet yes. scandal. That's a huge thing that they are giving up. And Without so question. does does that going to happen now? now like, let's remember that Shonda has also recently started an internet presence and community mm-hmm. to basically yeah, sure. not just monetize, but to own that part of it as well. Yeah. You're the online home for people who feel this passionately about things. So she's thinking she's thinking big picture and, and owning, you know, end to end, as you would say, on yeah. Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah. Um, for, I don't know if we glossed over it for people who aren't following the business as closely. To be clear, the shows that are on ABC will stay on ABC. Yeah. The reruns of these yeah, shows, yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of them are on Netflix, although – you know, remember that all of the moves that these players are making today are, are making them for the future that's coming very, very, very quickly, where all networks and studios own their own stuff and don't give it to Netflix. Mm-hmm. We are headed there with lightning speed. They're yes. pulling their or stuff. Or 
the creators will start working for Netflix. That's what will happen. They, they, yeah. So ABC will own the Grey's Anatomy, but they're going to lose the the pipeline of new stuff from right. Shonda. Now, do we know if she has many more great shows in her future? Probably. She has great relationships with people. And she has a lot of people working under her now, and she's got a huge but, you know, team. But, I'm curious if some, some of her writers, like Alan, for example, have deals with ABC Studios. Yeah. And, and I, then I, work I, with – so there's some politics there. Yeah. He, here's here's the, the bigger takeaway from Netflix that I wanted to, to, to pivot to. The other deal that we haven't talked about last week is that they bought Millar World from Scottish comic book writer Mark Millar. Mm-hmm. For people who don't know him, he is a contentious, controversial figure. He wrote for Marvel a little bit. He created the ultimate, uh, the Ultimates. Um, did uh, he wrote Civil War that basically became the Captain America movie? But he's also written like Kick Ass. Right? Then he went independent and wrote Kick Ass, and I think the Kingsman came did from he his do comics. Wanted? He did Wanted. Um, Kingsman came from him, yeah. Yeah, and so he has proven himself to be, you know, very smart businessman and and um, content creator. Here's here's the thing to remember about what Netflix is doing. It may seem like hiring Shonda Rhimes is a shot against ABC, but the Millar World deal is actually a sign that what Netflix sees as their only legitimate peer in competition is the Walt Disney Company, because what they were doing is saying, "We're networks are small potatoes. We are the future of content and entertainment." Mar- Disney bought Marvel and what it will be looked back on as one of the great deals, business deals, and also an underpay, honestly. Mm-hmm. DC has always, not always, but for decades been owned by Warner Brothers. So Netflix was like, well, where's ours? We need to be on that highest possible level content business to compete with these players who already have their arsenals of IP and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know if Millar World is that thing because the, the, the titles and franchises you mentioned are already bought. They're mm-hmm. already somewhere else. They're, buy- he's, they're buying what comes next. But that's where their that's where their ambitions are. That's the level of content creation that they want to be in, and the, the the competition. So, it's almost like, for me, it's just such a the whole thing with Shonda is just such like a it's kind of a power dick move, right? Because they're it like, is, but I also we we're not even concerned with you. ABC. You're taking one of, I mean, Chuck Lorre too, but you're taking somebody like Shonda who has had plenty of shows that go into the pipeline and don't work out. Mm-hmm. I'm very, very, very curious to know what this does to the paradigm of television show development, which is already under attack anyway, about going straight to series, about, you know, this idea where, but the networks are still piloting stuff, Mm -hmm. announcing things that don't get made, et cetera. How does this change that? Uh, And and, and when, you know, when do the networks start saying, you know what, we have all this spending power. Why isn't ABC going to Steven Spielberg and saying, what do you want to do? You know what I mean? Why is why why aren't they kind of making their own moves if this is the way that the the tele, the television is going where it's like creator and talent based as like a a selling point. Well, I think the one thing to remember is that Netflix is an entity unto itself whereas all the other networks for the most part are parts of a larger conglomerate where they make decisions on a much higher level. So we can talk about FX and say how great FX has this relationship with Noah Hawley. And I'm mentioning him just for the example I'm about to use. This is, comes from no inside knowledge of, this, of the situation. Um, and then we find out Noah is developing a Doctor Doom movie for, for Fox. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know John Landgraf's thinking. I'm sure he's happy for Noah personally, but he probably would rather have a season four of Fargo. But Noah's relationship is not just with FX anymore. It is with the larger company and feeding content to different arms of it. You know, it, whereas for Netflix, if you go there, it's all for one place. Yeah, you can do movies, you can do comedies, you can do what, whatever. So I think I think that's part of it. I think the um, we've been predicting or clamoring for the end of the archaic 
network broadcast network pilot season model for a long time. It's they've experimented. There have been straight to series things. There have been off cycle piloting. You know, they, they they've tried to to shake it up. Yeah, a lot of that stuff hasn't worked. You know, and I think that a lot of it is still going to be micro noted to death due, due to the advertising climate, due to the the space of it. And there's you know, plenty of stuff on if, Netflix if, that could have probably used some notes. Well, there's that's the flip side of it. But like, if you are again Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, and you want to make a comedy. And to do it for NBC, you have to squeeze it through. You have to be 21 minutes of comedy. Yeah. You have to have act breaks. You have to please all the different levels of it. Or you do it for Netflix. So what? Maybe there's a scene and it makes it 30 minutes. Maybe it makes it 32 minutes. They'll run it. Now, I agree with you. I think comedies can be better at 28 minutes. But it's more pleasant to be in that circumstance. And a lot of it also now is prestige. Like broadcast network TV, it can still be a quick payday. There's a quick turnaround. Sometimes people ask, why do people still do it? They have to make stuff. Every year we need new stuff, new stuff, new stuff. Whereas uh, cable is becoming – and streamers are becoming more and more like movies in that you got to package it. you got to get the right talent attached before we can even move forward. So it's possible to get a big payday up front and it's still possible to get a huge payday later on um, in the continued life cycle of the thing that you made. Whereas Netflix, they buy it, they own it forever in a closed ecosystem. So that's a little bit different. But it is a crazy world out there right now and you know it's just we keep seeing here's what i thought of when i read that news just to wrap up and to complete the cycle the circle here okay i just feel like you know how i saw i told you i told our listeners i saw landgraf at the yeah, yeah. game of thrones premiere yeah i feel like if he talked to casey bloys i'm sure they chatted about the premiere and the business and i, I for all, by all accounts they get along and respect each other i bet landgraf left by saying i wish you good fortune in the wars to come yeah <laughs> Because for real, it's about to get wild out there. It already is wild out there. But, I mean, Apple is coming. Apple is the army of the dead with hundreds of billions of dollars, you know? So all of these moves – let me tell you something. Netflix is not thinking about ABC's Thursday nights. They're not sweating that. Gotcha. They're they're thinking about how they're going to own the rest of the century, basically. Um, A lot of stuff to think about. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll return with my interview with uh, Adam Grandseal from The War on Drugs. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, friend. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you're like me and you're not so great at planning ahead, I got good news for you. There's this awesome app called Hotel Tonight that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute. And if it sounds counterintuitive, it's hotels aren't like flights. Hotel rates actually get cheaper at the last minute, usually. And Hotel Tonight helps hotels sell their unsold rooms, allowing them to pass those deals along to you. These are not last resort places. They are cool, top-rated hotels that you want to stay in. And with so many awesome partner hotels in a ton of different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. It's perfect for the spontaneous getaway or finally going on that trip you've been wanting to take for a while. I am going to lovely South Lake Tahoe this week. I'm excited for you. And Hotel Tonight was an active partner in in my planning of my trip. Because even though the app's name is Hotel Tonight, you can book up to a week in advance. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So get in on these killer last-minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. All right, I'm so psyched to be joined by the War on Drugs. Adam Grandisil, what's up, man? How you doing? Good. Good to be here. Uh, Adam's got a new record coming out. War on Drugs have a new record coming out called The Deeper Understanding. End of August? August 29th? August 25th, yeah. August 25th. All right, yeah. we're recording this uh, a little bit earlier than that. But I just wanted to ask, because it seems like this being like a, at least in its conception, like a woozy LA record, 
Have you already started getting a lot of LA record questions because of that? Or is it, is that a little like, bit? Yeah. I guess the, the question is usually like, Oh, I heard it was an LA record. Yeah. And then I'm, then I'm forced <laughs> to say, to kind of like expand on that. But, you, um, what made you say, was that just like a toss off thing at the time or were you? Yeah. I think at the time, I mean, I was living out here. I think guess I was just thinking about some records that were like quintessential, what me and my friends would call LA records, yeah. you know, whether it's like pet sounds or wrecking crew records or like, you know, on the beach ditch trilogy yeah. stuff, you know? And then I guess once I started getting a little bit more ingrained in LA and the studio life and having my own place and then working at places on this lot, really at yeah. United and, or, you know, your book ended by United and East West here. Yeah. Um, I worked at both those places. Then you kind of start like feeling the LA energy a little more, you know, like using an old echo chamber that's been used for 60 years, rooms that haven't really been touched all that much. You know, you hear legend of like David Rawlings and Jillian Welsh, like ripping up the tile at old supermarkets to get the <laughs> asbestos tile, like in the old LA studios, yeah. you know? So stuff like that, you're like, oh, I get it. It's just like, it's just like a thing, you know, recording a record in LA becomes like, its own kind of story. But you know? it's like, it's almost more of a motif than it is like a kind of yeah. operating theory of, of the album. Do you, right. I mean, I kept thinking, I was like, whether or not it was like a weather thing, but that doesn't really. I don't know. The light does do something out here though. Like weirdly, like right. I think that when I first moved out here, I was like, oh yeah, this is why they probably shoot movies out here yeah. or they used to, you know what I mean? Because it was yeah. like the, the light really does like, you never go too high or too low, which is interesting that a lot of the records you're mentioning are these kind of midlife crisis or like, you know, depression albums. Right. It's right. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Even, you know, that Warren Zevon record, Cut at Sunset. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I guess there's something to driving around LA at 6 37 o'clock and seeing the palm trees in your rear mirror and having your demo on or your record or yeah. someone else's record and feeling like that's the moment in time to be hearing it, you know? Yeah. Like it becomes yours in some weird it's, way. It's, it's like very romantic. I think it becomes your your record or whatever you're listening to becomes driving music inevitably. Right. you're always in the car. Yeah. Traffic so everything music. has like this new, especially listening here, like I feel like my taste in music has changed to to make it so that like it's very hard for me to listen to like acoustic music and, like anymore because I'm like, I'm always like, keep me entertain while I'm driving, keep yeah. me like engaged a little bit. Do yeah. you find your taste ch changing out here when you spend more time out here? Yeah, I guess you're always trying to uncover new stuff. Yeah. You know, out here, I've been a little bit more of an active music listener than I was before, I guess because of the car. Yeah. Because I had like my phone, you know, or I had like radio, a serious radio in my car now. I didn't have a car in LA or in Philly yeah. or New York or anything. Um, I was like listening to a lot of different music, more modern music, you know. More current music. Yeah. And making more of a point like, oh, I got to go to the dentist. That's going to take me seven hours because I have to drive <laughs> 10 blocks. Yeah, right. So I, you know, I mean, update my phone and put some stuff on I want to listen to. When you listen to the more modern stuff, do you just like put on a pop music station and just check out what's Yeah, happening? I guess when I mean modern, I guess mean like contemporaries, you know, so I listen to Sirius, yeah. which is something like just satellite radio that I haven't really didn't do before. I wanted to ask you a lot about the process of this record. So it seems like you... It was what a fifteen month recording. Like it's it, how long from like okay, I'm making a new album to we just mastered it. Yeah, about fifteen months. Yeah. like November of fifteen to April of seventeen. And is that the longest you've ever worked on a single project? Yeah, I guess it was. It was the longest. It was that it was that focused. Okay, like it was pretty much came off tour in October of 2015, and had a couple weeks, and then I was kind of like I had already had some of the stuff 
not even fully written, but like mapped out or an idea where mm-hmm. I had like, you know, strangest thing I demo. We had demoed as a band a year before. So I had a few songs at least. So I wasn't going into it totally blind. But yeah, like I rented out my studio. I found this place in Atwater Village and signed the lease for November 1st. And by December 1st, it pretty much made it my own, like repainted it, hung up cool lights. Was it a studio already? or did Yeah, you it was a studio there? run by this guy, Richard, uh, who's become one of my good buddies. But he opened it in the early 90s and they did everything from jazz to a Backstreet Boy demo session to Super Tramp, Nancy Sinatra, like all sorts, just like a functioning L.A., mid-level studio. The Beastie Boys studio used to be over there. That was up on Glendale. Yeah, yeah. that was in that same little little neighborhood. Because I remember, what record did they do there? Was that Paul's Boutique or was that? I think it was Paul's it, Boutique or was it the one? Um, was with, it Check uh, Your Head? Oh, was it, maybe it was Check Your Head. I'm not sure. That. It was like one of those and it was just like, oh, that was like cooler. a real, like they got lost in the studio yeah. forever story. Where and I, I imagine that Atwater was like, there was not a lot to do over there back then. Right. Now yeah. it's like, it's like that little neighborhood. I kind of, because when I moved here, I really didn't know where I was half the time. Yeah. And then Atwater, having the studio over there, I kind of all of a sudden had like a little uh, a little neighborhood of my own. So what's cool. the process for recording something like this? Do you do a lot of um, building of tracks by yourself? Do you put, have like full band workouts and then you guys do overdubs like separately? Or like what? how, how does something like this come together? Because one of the things I've loved about listening to it is just um, on certain tracks, I'll just be like, oh, I didn't hear that line like in the fourth minute that's like kind of low down in the mix, but it's like this little counter melody happening. And it always makes me wonder how a band puts together these kinds of, they're they're not symphonies, but they're like these, like you're telling a story and there's like all these little subtle things in there. Yeah. I guess it changes per song, but for the most part, I feel most comfortable starting stuff by myself and like, you know, recording some sort of demo, whether or not that demo like ends up as the main backbone of the song later on, like in chains was like, I never strayed too far from the demo that mm-hmm. I recorded. And then some of the other ones I record a demo and then we'll demo it as a band and we'll kind of not change it all that much, but everyone will kind of slowly fall into their parts and maybe we'll tweak a few things. Strangest thing in pain were like that. Like I'd kind of written them and then we worked on them as a band a few different times before we cut it in the studio. And then some of the songs are just kind of like, I start by myself on a drum machine. Um, the guys were coming to LA to record. Before we started working with Sean, we had about six months where the Sean guys Everett, were, right? Sean yeah. Everett, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We started in June of 16 and I had my own studio. So the guys were coming out from Philly well, once a month, every five weeks. And we would just hole up in my studio and record on the demos, you know, because me and Dave are both pretty adept engineers. Yeah. And Richard, the guy I rented it from, um, he had a great mic collection and cool outboard gear and Pro Tools, like HD. So yeah. it was like, and then I had brought in a bunch of all sorts of other stuff. So we had like a lot of tools at our disposal that we didn't have of our own, like really nice old German mics and ribbon mics. And no hourly rate. No hourly away. at all. It's yeah. like we could be there, you know, anytime we wanted. So, so how do you not get lost when that happens? You just try to, uh, A, I think knowing that we were going to be working with Sean was kind of this like, not even a deadline, but almost like, all right, well, nothing that we're doing has to be the, the it, you know, because we hired Sean to come in and record this record. So we're really just having fun. Oh, I see. And seeing what happens, you know, like maybe we'll recut a bunch of these songs or maybe we'll keep these cool drums we recorded. And that's kind of what ended up happening. Like Sean came in in June, we did some stuff. 
live as a band, like thinking of a place, the first half of the song is pretty much live bass, drums, guitar solo. Um, Pain was pretty much like that. And then other stuff like Up All Night, the first track was something I built on my Lindrum and had like three different versions of it. And a lot of that we recorded in the first six months. And then we worked on it a little bit with Sean, but something about that song, it wasn't working for about six or seven months. So I kind of forgot about it until the very end um, when I was in New York at the beginning of this year, um, working pretty much by myself in a bunch of studios. Okay. And that, that one started to come together. Like I needed to like spend like a couple of weeks on it, getting inside of it or something. You're not betraying like any neurosis about this. Like it's, <laughs> you know, cause like I'd expect maybe like, yeah, man, it took us like a year and a half, quartered all over the place. And, you know, sometimes like, I don't know, it seems like you took on a lot of work by yourself. It was sprawling across multiple cities and different parts of the country. And, you know, there's not necessarily pressure on you guys, but you're, you're like, people love your band and they want to hear a new record from you. I mean, yeah. do you, do you ever feel that pressure? Do you ever feel any anxiety about making something that like, I mean, I'm just curious because you sound very chill about the entire process. Yeah. I think the process, like it's obviously in retrospect that it's done now. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little easier. Like there's, you know, each time you make a record, I feel like you have those moments where, you know, the first month you're so psyched. You're like, wow, we're going to finish this record in two months. Like, yeah. We're all there. Like we cut the drums. All you have to do is some stuff. And then three months after that, you're like, at least for me, I was like, oh man, like I'm like in a wormhole. Like I don't like any of these songs. Everything doesn't, nothing feels like a step up or nothing feels like a band playing together. So, and, and then you spend two months like going even further, you know, on a tangent and then six months after that, you're like, oh, things start to make sense again. Yeah. Whether or not you go back to original takes or whatever. And I feel like each time you make a record, you kind of get used to those, that like up and down. Yeah. Like the, the sort of like any crisis is actually not a crisis. Right. And yeah. it's like all you, you know, all it is, is it's, it's just music and you just keep writing and keep pulling things away until it feels like, feels like music or feels like a good representation of what the band is or, or if it's good representation of what you're trying to do. Have you ever been in, in drugs or any other project like on the, like the Husker do like Creedence diet of like a record every 10 months kind of thing or every nine months? No, no, no. I guess it's like, why, why would you need to? But yeah. Do you, can in the you early not- days when me and Kurt were working together a lot, he was not full on records, but he was always putting stuff out, yeah. which was cool. It was like, that was like 2000, Seven, eight, nine um, EPs, singles, and stuff. Yeah, like yeah. EPs, like with all sorts of different labels, small stuff, like a pressing of two hundred. Yeah, but there was always like a trove of things that he was putting out um, that we'd have at our shows or whatever, um, or that we'd be working on mm-hmm. in my house or his house. But yeah, these, even his records and my records, um, yeah, tend to you know put it out and then tour and then you know for this one. I wanted to get started on it quickly just because I know that it takes time yeah. to do it the way I like to do it. And, you know, we want to get out and tour and, you know. How do you keep yourselves uh, entertained when you're working on a record for 15 months? Well, the studio had a hoop in okay. the parking lot. So that was cool. We'd shoot hoops. And you play a couple times a week any anyway, right? 
Well, I had back surgery, not oh, no. unlike uh, Bill Walton, or I don't know. I, was, I don't know who, who had back surgery. Well, Steve Kerr is very against Steve back Kerr, surgery. Yeah. I know, right. Now he's like the, the anti-back surgery right. lobby. Yeah. I had like a, it started from, I don't even know when it started, but I had like a, it started with like a bulging disc oh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. And for some reason I was like, okay, cool. Sounds good. And then I didn't change anything I was doing. <laughs> like I was still like lifting my high watt amp, like into the back of my car. You got to get a roadie, man. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And then it got worse and worse and worse. And then actually when we were recording right up over here at United one night, I was like loading out of United at 6 a.m. And I had to take a flight to Robbie's wedding at like 10 a.m. or something. And all this gear, like three trips back and forth to my studio and went to bed feeling like I definitely tweaked my back. Yeah. And then that was like the beginning of the end where it was like the next three months. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't walk. I couldn't sit. I couldn't sleep. So then I ended up having surgery. Which was great because it's actually super simple procedure. And uh, for the level that, because then my disc ended up being ruptured. So it was like okay. all the acidic gel in yeah. your disc had just essentially shot all over my nerves. So oh. it was like, they go in there and they scrape it off. It sounds like alien. <laughs> yeah, it felt like alien. <laughs> but that, I mean, it was a pretty quick heal, you know, and I had, I had to do like physical therapy for it. But honestly, like once I did that and I, I was in bed for like six days, but I wasn't really taking any pills or anything. And once I could like walk and move around and ride in a car again, I like had a whole new vision, like a whole new energy for the record. Really? Because up until that point, like it wasn't every day, but it was like standing and holding a guitar was really painful. Yeah. Sitting at the chair where I'm working on Pro Tools was really painful. So it kind of affected just like my ability to like focus on music, you know, whether I'd be like sitting down trying to do an acoustic guitar part, I'd be like, I can't sit any longer. You know, my limit was like six minutes, Huh? you know? And, you know, driving was really hard. So once I actually took care of it, like in January, when I finally went to the East Coast and I had been doing physical therapy for, or I'd been healing for about seven weeks and I was going to start doing PT and I was starting to work in the studio again. I was like so focused because I could sit, I could stand, I, could, I didn't have to think about it anymore. That's wild. And it was, it was like, I sometimes would say to my friends and my girlfriend, I was like, I don't know what I would, I don't think I would have finished this record if I didn't have the surgery. Cause it was like, just was consuming my whole life. You would I have to focus. become like Daft Punk and stand with some synths. That's it. Right. Which is, I mean, you know, that's may, maybe, maybe I don't need back surgery to do that. <laughs> yeah, right. But, um, but it was for me personally, it was kind of a turning point just cause it was like, I kind of was in New York now with like, a fresh mind, you know? So what did it do to your game? You become more of a spot up shooter now or like, right. So that was the thing. So now I'm, I'm trying to like baby it a little bit so that I don't like re injure it. Yeah. But I think I'm, 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 by the time we go on tour, I should be able to, uh, shoot. But when we were playing, I think the most intense game we had was a couple of years ago in long Island. We did a benefit show and we stayed at this guy's house and he had a hoop in his yard and it was me and Dave versus Dave's a great player. Yeah. He's like, really good player and like, a huge hoops fan yeah. huge hoops fan every day his knowledge is growing deep in the hoops you does know? he bring a lot of advanced stats to you about like your like pickup he games? could yeah he could it's just like your effective field goal percentage is actually yeah. lower than you think it is well, that was the whole thing with the matt bonner thing because <laughs> he was like you know that like when he did the let bonner shoot campaign yeah he was like he had done the numbers and he was like you know matt bonner actually has the highest <laughs> some percentage yeah in the history of the nba i don't know why he isn't in the three-point contest. I yeah. was like, you're right. I don't either, dude. So you're so, playing in Long Island. 
We were playing on Long Island just in this guy's driveway with, I think, probably a deflated soccer ball. <laughs> and our sound guy at the time, Mickey, um, he's like 7'2 or something. He was not really. He's like 6'10. This huge. You got George Mersh on yeah. doing sound for you. <laughs> and then our, our, our old drummer, Steven, I think was his, um, was his teammate, maybe. But I remember that being an intense game. I, I noticed that you just said our former sound guy and our old drummer. So it yeah. sounds like it was pretty intense. It was, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, everyone's everyone's cool. It was an old old era, but we did have some good games at the studio. Yeah, um, do you guys watch a lot of basketball on the road? Yeah, we do. If it's on, yeah, yeah. I remember when two years ago, or maybe it was three years ago, I guess we watched the finals in Miami. Yeah, if there's a game on, we'll watch it. So I was talking. Um, Katie Crutchfield from Waxahachie was on. Oh yeah, a couple weeks ago, and she was uh, she was telling me and Andy about how like when you're on tour. You can, especially if you're just like in a moving vehicle, you can just like completely get lost in your phone. Um, yeah. That it just becomes like this thing that's even worse than when you're outside of the van. Cause like, you know, you can look at stuff out the window, but after a while, if you start looking at your phone, you just get sucked down these rabbit holes. Does that happen to you at all? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I need, I want to find a way this upcoming cycle to like not have the phone all the time. Yeah. You know, I mean, Dave ditched the phone a year and a half ago. He got a flip phone. Did he? And he has this, we got these free Samsung phones at Lollapalooza and he carries it around essentially as a laptop. So when he gets Wi-Fi, he'll go on that and he'll do his mess, you know, his social stuff, whatever. It's so strange. Like I've tried, I've tried like um, blocking certain words from Twitter. Right. Like I just want pure basketball and soccer Twitter. Like I, but I, I follow too many people who still talk about Trump or talk about, right. You know, like whatever the, the sort of viral news story of the day is. And then I'll just yeah. be like, God this is just making me feel so terrible inside. Right. But I can't, I can't get the algorithm yeah, the, right. The, the wormhole too is like yeah. the comments. Yes. You're like, oh, let me just click on this for five for a second. <laughs> nope. And then it's like, you're like, why am I all of a sudden like I'm standing. Are you mostly like on music Twitter or sports Twitter or politics? Like what would I you guess say? I, I don't actually, um, I would say music and music and politics. Okay. Inadvertently politics, but that's the wormhole I go down the most. Yeah. Yeah. And then just like web, you know, click on websites and, and whatever, anything. Yeah. My it's reverb the con- app. I'm like, oh, maybe I'm looking for this. I'm looking for this pedal. Yeah. And then you're like, I didn't find the pedal, but I just bought three microphones and <laughs> yeah. a 61 Jazzmaster. Yeah. What some, I done? Some wristbands. Right. <laughs> um, what do you, you guys watch anything together as a band? Like any shows? We watch Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. We're all, uh, not everyone. It's, it's funny actually, because me, Dave and Robbie, super into Thrones. John, our sax player. John Natos. John yeah. Natos, right. Yeah. So he's yeah. he's anti decidedly anti thrones. Is that a take of his or is he just like I'm he just like thinks a- he's he's on this thing where he's like, I'm just not into the fantasy. Okay. I'm like, well, <laughs> just give it you should just watch it because it's deeper than that. Right. And you get maybe it is, maybe it isn't. There's a lot going on. I think you really like it. Yeah. And then but now it's funny because I remember a couple when we were recording at the studio down the road in between tours. Um We'd been on tour for four weeks. I booked a week at the studio. It's like when we demoed like Strangest Thing. And it was Sunday night and the and Thrones was on. So we all got watched it in the control room. And it was the episode where uh, Arya is like rowing into Bravos or something. Yeah, she rowed for a while. Yeah. And like, right, I guess she did ride for a while. But the, the joke was like, we started watching the first two minutes of the show. And John's like, I get it. You're rowing. You're <laughs> rowing. I get it. And he like storms out of the room. And he always comes back to that. He's like, I don't know. She's just rowing forever. Yeah. But now, so we kind of make fun of him for it. But See, now, that's not the fantasy part. That's like the actually the mundane stuff that they show that people right. often have a problem with. But now he's like, 
he's anti-Thrones, but he's also like listening to Thrones podcasts now. And I'm like, dude, just watch the show. It's okay to like admit it. Just dive in, dude. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, people this season have had a problem with like uh, characters getting very long distances with like seemingly without effort. You know, like they'll just get across an ocean in right. like one second. Like, oh, how'd Varys get there? Yeah, and then but and like, I'm just like, just there flew. are dragons in this show. So if they're right. going to like cut corners on like, you know, how, I don't really want to watch people take long ocean journeys every right. time this happens. Yeah. Uh, any other shows besides Thrones? Because um, I was kind of wondering, you know, we often talk like, like you will talk to people a lot of screenwriters will be like, I was listening to a lot of this kind of music when I was writing this script. Right. You know, I was listening to like Tarantino was like always like listening to classic Morricone soundtracks. Yeah. When he writes. But I was almost wondering if the, if it ever goes both ways when you're writing music, are you watching like Altman movies and you're just like, I want to write a song that feels like it would be in this one. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, I, f- I feel like in that regard, we're always sharing like music docs mm. or links to like, cause now with YouTube, there's like, oh, there's a, f- 45 minute movie about the making of so yeah i don't even know who made this thing but there's killer footage you know and yeah you, and you see one clip you know you see a whole movie of peter gabriel sitting in his control room with a Rhodes and a space echo and his mic and he's like you know they're building the music and he's just sitting in the control room singing and playing the hooks yeah and you're like oh that's like you get so lost in all being out there in our headphones and sometimes you just have to like find a refreshing way to like interact with the music you're recording. You know? Did you ever see the uh, making of Steely Dan Asia? No. There's this, okay. So there's this incredible moment where uh, Fagan and Becker are sitting in front of the mixing board and they're like, you know, like in, this was probably 10, 15 years ago that they did the doc right. and they're playing peg and they're just going through each track of peg. Yeah. And then they get to the Michael McDonald backing vocals <laughs> and they just are like, like smiling at each other and then they just like knock out everything except for Michael McDonald's like one like yeah and it sounds hilarious like and they're just like cracking up and Michael McDonald like they cut to another separate Michael McDonald interview he's like yeah yeah I tried to sing it as best as I could you know like yeah it's pretty great I love I should have actually we actually right up the road on Hollywood Boulevard is um used to be the producer's workshop and now it's called Boulevard Recording and my friend owns it but um, yeah, they did Asia there and they did some of the wall there. Yeah, those Pretty guys classic. when they were in LA, they, some of the liner notes they wrote for the records they made in LA make it sound quite desperate time out here. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember when I was younger, I, like, I didn't even know much about Steely Dan, but I had the gate, the maybe it was just the best of Steely yeah. Dan where the, the inside gatefold is Becker with the long stringy hair and the shades. Yeah. And then Fagan right next to him. I just thought it was the, I thought, man, those are the coolest guys I ever. Know. And, and they I were had just it, like, like these up in my room, I like, like New York 19. nerds who were hanging out. Yeah. yeah. And then you like, you know, you grow up, you're like, ah, oh, different, different. I'll uh, I'll let you go now, man. Uh, a deeper understanding is out August 25th. This is Adam Grandisil from War on Drugs. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah, man. thanks for having me. Okay, so that was Adam Grandisil from the War on Drugs. His new album, A Deeper Understanding. Uh, is out on August 25th. Thanks so much to him for coming by. Uh, Andy will be back on Thursday. I'm off that day. Yeah, special guest coming in. Who is it? David Wayne. Nice. Creator, director, Wet Hot American Summer. Awesome. We're going to talk comedy, something I can't do with you here. I'm not very funny. I'll be back on Sunday night with Andy, with Mallory, with Jason for Talk the Thrones after the East Coast airing of of Game of Thrones, which I think is a little bit longer than usual. Probably. Also, everyone should know, still a couple tickets available to our second literally and, a couple like literally like a few our second and final Talk the Thrones live of the season happening next week 
August 23rd here in Los Angeles at Largo. Special guests, maybe some, some accent work. Some special guests. Costumes. Yeah, yeah. Fun. Uh, Get your tickets now at Largo. Through Largo. I don't know. How to, we tweeted the information. Buy tickets. Yeah. All right. Talk to you guys soon. <laughs>